I cannot even tell you what the scripture was. I can't tell you the title of the sermon. I can't even tell you one single point I made in my first sermon I ever preached. It was 1993 in Marietta, Georgia. I don't remember anything. All I remember are two things. One, I was absolutely terrified. I had never preached before. One of the elders came up after I was finished and said that the entire time I was bent down over the pulpit. Not once did I straighten up. I didn't make eye contact with anybody. I was just trying to survive the experience. The other thing that I remember is that I gave an illustration or a story or a joke, rather, to start the sermon off. Now, like a lot of you, you don't really ever remember what I preach. You just remember the stories that I give you. I don't even remember what I preach, but I remember my stories. That's pretty sad. So I said this story. I said, I hope that my sermon is not like a Texas steer with a point here and a point here and a lot of bull between. Now that was my, yeah, they, they responded about like what you just did. <laughs> totally not really very funny. And it just crushed the weight of anxiety over me. That was my icebreaker. That was for me, not for anything else. So it was just to make me less nervous and it was really not very funny, and they made me more nervous after that. So I don't know, you know, preaching is something that I started out, and I didn't know anything about it. But what I've learned in a lot of years of doing it is that everybody has a preference. Now, you probably know if you've been here for a while, I don't really preach brief sermons. They average about 40 minutes and I've been argued with, I've been given statistics, I've been given cliches and idioms and phrases to present the case of people why I should reduce the length of these sermons. People have told me that the, that the brain can only absorb what the rear end can endure. I mean, I've heard, I think, most of it. Has it really reduced the length of the sermons? But I do understand everybody has preferences. You know what the longest sermon ever preached is? is? It's in the world's book, of Guinea's wor uh, book of records. Zach Zender from Florida did it. He preached a sermon that was 53 hours and 18 minutes long. And when you kind of understand that, then it makes my sermons not so long and a little bit more palatable. Long sermons, short sermons, everybody has a preference. You know what? Some people like sermons with a lot of stories. Some like jokes, they like anecdotes, at least if they're going to be funny. Some like really strong preaching. When I really preach strongly, I get a lot of people coming up to me and telling me, wow, you really gave it to us, that was a really good sermon. Well, some people don't like that. In fact, last week, somebody who was here uh, during the week, somebody that was here last weekend came up to me and said, you know what, I really didn't like that sermon, it was too preachy. I like it when you teach. So everybody has a preference for what they like in their sermons, and I've really pretty quickly stopped trying to please everybody because you can't. It's not going to happen. But one thing I've learned is this, and listen, if you want to be a preacher one day, if you want to be able to break open God's word and you want to bring it to people, here's what I've learned. Here is all the preferences aside, here's the main thing you need to remember. Your sermon must be centrally based on God's word. Anything else will not transform. Nothing else is powerful. It might be 
really fun to listen to. You might do a lot of laughing. You might come out of there saying, man, that pastor's funny. Those stories, I will never forget them, but you will go back to church the following weekend with nothing having changed in your life. The only thing transformatively powerful is the Word of God, and that's what we're going to see today as we return back to Jonah. Jonah, with all of his faults, and he had a lot of them, and we're going to see more of them unfold in the last two of these chapters. We're over the hump now in chapter 3. But with all of his faults, Jonah knew this. He had to preach God's word. If you've missed the first 10 sermons in this series, I'm going to encourage you to get online. You can either watch them, listen to them, or read them and get caught up. But Jonah was a prophet from God. He was a Jew. And God sent him on a mission to an incredibly cruel and incredibly wicked group of people, the Assyrians who lived in a massive city called Nineveh. And watch your text, either in chapter 1 or chapter 3, he wasn't going there to preach for them, he was preaching against them. That's a preposition you do not want to hear when God is speaking towards you. He goes to Nineveh. Nineveh was the most massive city on the planet at that time. Look at chapter 3. The text changes from chapter 1. It was a great city to an exceedingly great city because this city was so large that it would almost stagger the imagination of an 8th century B.C. human. Here's how big it was. I want you to think of Metro Philadelphia or where I used to live, Metro Atlanta. If you get to Metro Nineveh, the outer skirts of the city, then you're going to have to travel 60 miles around. That is huge when you're talking way back 800 B.C. And that's what, that's what housed their agrarian society, all the fields and all the farms and all the brick-making factories. That's where all of that was that would bring the sustenance to the lives of that many inhabitants. Over 600,000 people lived in Nineveh. So 60 miles around Metro Nineveh, you come into the Nineveh proper and you've got a wall that's 100 feet high. It's got 1,200 watchtowers all the way around it. It's eight miles around. It's so wide that you can, you can put three chariots side by side and ride them around the walls. Those 1,200 watchtowers most of which were 200 feet high. This is a massive wall. And then you move in to the interior of Nineveh. You've got botanical gardens. You've got zoos. You've got parks. You've got fountains. You've got rivers. You've got creeks. You get all the way into the center of Nineveh, and all of a sudden you find a 100-acre plot with a palace on it. That's how big the king's palace was. So it's an exceedingly great city, and I want you to imagine, and I'm going to help you imagine this, I want you to imagine if you can even sort of think on how nervous I was the first time that I preached. Can you imagine Jonah, a Jew, walking into an Assyrian capital city of Nineveh? It would be like you, Christian, being called by God to a Middle Eastern city that is completely controlled by ISIS and being told to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no difference. 
This is exactly what it would have been like for Jonah. He is to go into the city. He is to preach, not for it, a welcoming, wonderful message of God's love for them. He is preaching against them, and he's armed with nothing but the word of God. Can you imagine the courage that it took for Jonah to do that? I love what Billy Graham once said, the will of God will not take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Now bring that into your own life. If God is telling you, if God is moving you to share Christ with your family member, your co-worker, even maybe your boss, your roommate, your neighbor, it doesn't matter, think of whoever it might be, if God is moving you to do that, then he will give you the grace to sustain you. So we begin our text in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. If you didn't bring your Bible, I would encourage you, grab your pew Bible. It's page 775. Let's all get our Bibles open. Let's all follow along with what the Word of God says. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now let's stop there. We're going to go a little bit further, but let's stop there because you just heard his sermon. We're going to deep dive into the sermon, point number one, and the response of the people, point number two. So let's look at the sermon. We just read it. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Martin Luther once advised young preachers with these seven words, quote, stand up, speak out, and sit down. And that kind of brings to mind, maybe conjures a very brief, very concise sermon, except you got to remember that Martin Luther's sermons almost always averaged an hour plus. But we've got this very deliberate teaching by Martin Luther that said, listen, just stand up and give the word of God. You don't need to expound. You don't need to help God's word. You don't need to make it palatable. You don't need to entertain people with it. It's the power to bring change. So stand up, speak out, and sit down. Well, here's Jonah, who goes into Nineveh, goes a day's journey, the text says, It begins to preach a little sermon, and here it is again, eight words, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not eight words in the Hebrew text, it's five words, right? Actually, it's less than that. But listen, in our English translation, eight words. You know, that's one word less than the first sermon that Jesus preached. His first sermon was nine words. But it's likely that Jonah had a whole lot more to say than this. This is what the sermon boils down to. If you get it down to the maple syrup, and that's how you do it with sap. We did this when I was a little boy. You would take 40 gallons of sap from your maple tree, boil it and boil it until you get less than a gallon of maple syrup. So if you boil his sermon down into the syrup, here it is. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It sounds like a sermon of doom. Probably would not be very popular in our day today. I mean, how would you like a a pastor, a guest preacher to come one weekend and he stands up where I am right now and he says to you, Cornerstone, America, and yet 40 days, America will be overthrown. What would be your response? Some of you I know would say, you know what, I think you're probably right. 
But do you have anything else? Do you have any hope for us? How could this sermon change anybody? Well, let me show you two ways you could see God's grace in this little sermon. The first one is way more obvious than the second one. The first one's this, 40 days. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Parents, I want you to think about this. It recalls times with me and with Denise, with our four little children when they were young, where they would do something they should not have done or they, they weren't doing what we told them to do, and there was a warning that we would give them. Very rarely do good parents, the moment that your child disobeys, dispense discipline. We don't want to discipline. We don't want to have to spank. We don't want to have to take something away. We fire across the bow first. We give them an opportunity to do what they're supposed to do or stop doing what they're not supposed to do. And this is exactly what God, the perfect father, is doing. He's giving them time to repent. He doesn't need to do this. This is why it's grace. I would invite you to go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. Look at the first couple verses. And notice again just how wicked Nineveh was. Their cruelty, their evil rose all the way up to God in heaven. It's forming the phrase or the cliche, it stank to high heaven. This is how bad Assyria was. Next week, I'm going to share with you, Lord willing, it's going to be a little PG-13-ish, just how wicked these people were. But suffice it to say this week, listen, God did not have to wait. He would have been perfectly just, he would have been perfectly right to bring his wrath and destroy them immediately. See, this is the, this is the grace of preaching. Preaching is God's mechanism to turn people from sin. It's a divine threat, what Jonah preaches. It's a God warning. It's a gracious opportunity to repent. Now, that's obvious, yet 40 days. Let me show you what's not so obvious, yet you can see God's grace in this. Let's look at the word overcome or overthrown. You will have remembered this word as I read this verse from Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and here's the word, and he overthrew those cities. That overthrew words, the exact same word in Jonah chapter 3. And here it means to be utterly destroyed. And that's what God did. In fact, archaeologically, they're still finding sulfur. They're still finding brimstone. They're still finding evidence of a massive desolation of cities right where they know Sodom and Gomorrah were. This was total and complete destruction. And that's what the word overthrown can mean. But it has another meaning in the Hebrew language as well, and this is where you see the grace. It can also mean a reversal, a turning upside down. 
an about face or a change of heart, and you get to see it with God himself in Deuteronomy 23. But the Lord your God turned, that's the word overthrown in the Hebrew, turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So God took what could have been a curse, he turned it upside down, he had a reversal of fortune, he gave a reversal of fortune, he had an about face, a change of heart, what could have been a cursing, God now makes into a blessing. That's the other version, the other translation, the other meaning of the word overthrown. So here's what Jonah is saying to the Assyrian people. There is hope if you change. Yet 40 days, God will overthrow you. Well, let me explain it a little bit more. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you go to the doctor because you're not feeling well. And you get all of the examinations, and the doctor calls you back in for an appointment. He puts you into a room, a consultation room, and he comes in. He sits down, and you already know the way that he's looking or she's looking at you. This is not going to be good news. This is going to be bad news, and surely it is. The doctor says you have cancer. Some of you don't need to imagine this because you're experiencing or you have experienced this. Listen, my dad died of prostate cancer. When your father or your mother dies of this, if, you know, if you're like me, you feel like you're a ticking time bomb for cancer. You're always on the lookout for it. So here's a doctor comes in and says you've got cancer, and then the bad news gets even worse. See, the MRIs came back. The toxicology reports came back. This is the most aggressive form of this cancer you can have and you're stunned you're shocked i mean listen when you learn that you've got a disease that is going to kill you or at least has a chance to kill you it totally turns your world upside down I thought I had cancer a few years ago. I had all the symptoms for it. I went to the doctor, but in the days leading up to my appointment, I'm imagining I'm dying young and my children grow up without a father. I'm writing letters in my mind. I want them to open them when they're 16 on the day of their wedding. I mean, I want to keep investing in my children long after I'm gone. This is just what you think. I go to the doctor, and they rush me over to Warren Hospital in about 50 minutes. I'm thinking, this never happens, into the ultrasound department. I'm thinking, I am surely going to die, and this is the shock that I'm feeling. So the doctor tells you in this illustration that you've got cancer, and not only do you have cancer, you've got the most aggressive form of it. That's the bad news that has gotten worse, but then all of a sudden, the doctor says this, but I want you to know it is treatable. It has a 100% cure rate. Now think about this. That's the good news. And the good news is so good because the bad news was so bad. If you had gone to the doctor and you weren't feeling well and the, and the assessment was, well, you were dehydrated. Here, let me prescribe to you a six-pack of purified water Go drink it, and in two days, you're going to be fine. Well, good. You're kind of relieved because there's not anything worse. But when you know you've got cancer, you know you've got aggressive cancer, you're going to die if you don't get treated, but the treatment is 100% effective, then all of a sudden, the good news is so good because the bad news was so bad. That's the gospel. And the doctor, Jonah, 
had the joy of sharing it, not only for your relief, but for the relief of your loved ones as well. You see, this is the point of Jonah's sermon, which God himself gave him to preach. Remember, go into Nineveh and preach the message that I give you. These are God's words. The, pre the preacher's just the conduit. And he preaches bad news, and he preaches good news. And depending on their response, God will either destroy them for their wickedness in 40 days, or if they repent, he will redeem them, he will relent, and he will save them. See, when God warns us, now bring it into your own life, because I really seriously doubt that not, or I would really seriously suspect that every single one of us have experienced the warnings of God. We're doing a behavior, we're going on a course of action that is not pleasing to God, or we're not getting moving doing something that God wants us to do, and sometimes he warns us, and when he does, it's not to terrify you, it's not to scare you, it's to move you to repentance. That's the gracious purpose of God's discipline. You get to see it in Jeremiah 18. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. God wants to save. He is relentlessly gracious. But he will not hesitate in sending a warning. Parents, you will not hesitate, hopefully, if you're a good parent, in sending sometimes your children the warnings. And sometimes God's warnings, listen, they can come through near-death experiences that all of a sudden turn you back to God. Sometimes it's the near discovery of your sin where your wife or your husband or somebody almost discovered that you've been patternistically indulging in something you shouldn't. It could be a sudden health issue. It could be a car accident that lands you in the hospital. This last week, one of my closest friends in the church told me about on his way to Clark's Summit, got into, he's in a minivan, got into a head-on collision with a lady who had crossed the line into his lane. It so crushed the van that they it took them hours to get him out, pulverized his legs, collapsed his lung, just about killed him. And he said to me last Wednesday evening, I am so thankful that God did that because it brought me back to him. See, sometimes God will fire across the bow, and when he does, it is not to terrify you. It is not to show you a mean and vindictive and cosmic button-smiting God. It's to show you his grace. He doesn't need to do that, but he loves you and he will. See, his warnings are his grace. He wants to turn you from that which is wrong towards that which is right. And you know how they work? They work like those flashing signs on the side of the road that are flashing back and forth telling you there's a sharp curve up ahead. Or like that custodian's sandwich board that says slippery when wet after they mop. They're warning, slow down, stop, turn around, or you're going to suffer harm. 
Now, I want to underscore this just for a moment. It is so critically important to understand this. You need to understand truly what Jonah's message was saying. So let me just recap it, and we're going to move to the response. Yet 40 days. Listen, it's the flashing neon danger sign. It's the opportunity that God was giving to Nineveh. Stop. Turn around. And the word overthrown is a message of what's going to happen if they did not. They will be utterly destroyed, but there's another meaning to it. It can be what will happen to them if they do turn around. God will redeem them. God will save them. And he does do this because they do turn around. See, this is a warning, this sermon. It's a warning of destruction and a call to repentance and hope. And by the way, can I say this before we leave this point? It's exactly the same gospel message preached throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus kept preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. Repent means turn around. Peter preaches in Acts 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of, may, of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is always the gospel. The gospel has good news, which is so good, times refreshing from the Lord because the bad news is so bad. You will face an eternity in hell if you do not repent. See, God delights in saving people. And preaching, now listen, I'm going to sum all this up in this statement. Preaching must be the gracious call that warns of God's judgment, yet extends hope if there is repentance. That's what preaching ought to be. But what about their response? How were these wicked people going to take this message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let me get you ready for the response. You know, right now, can everybody look up here for a second? I'm going to tell you what the entire book of Jonah is about. Jonah was written not for the Assyrians. It was codified, it was written, it was put into manuscript form, listen, for Israel. This was a book that was put into their Old Testament literature. Why? The book is all about, here it is, the sum of the entire book of Jonah. It's all about God who is relentlessly gracious and freely offers his salvation. Now listen, it doesn't end there. Freely offers his salvation, yet, there's a, another side of this, yet his people, Israel, his people held on to their salvation as if it belonged to them alone. That was never the plan. God chose Israel, the smallest of all the peoples on the earth, really despised, if you look at Ezekiel 17, unwanted, unlovely. There was nothing appealing about the Jewish people. God chose them. He raised them up. He began to bless them so that through them, they, they would be a beacon of God's grace and love and saving power to the entire world. See, Israel was never saved. Israel never became the apple of God's eye, his blood-bought possession, his treasured possession for themselves. He wanted to bless them so that everybody on the planet could see what a blessing God he is. Just look at Israel and you'll want those same blessings. 
Now listen, I'm going to sum this up and bring you to Romans. What the plan was is that God blessing Israel would make all the Gentiles jealous and they would want it too. You get to Romans and it absolutely flipped. Now it was God's blessing Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous because they had forsaken their mission. The book of Jonah is to get Israel back on mission. It's to get the church today on mission. It's to get you and I on mission. Because God's people need to see that his love, his salvation, extends to everybody. I love what John Ortberg once wrote. This is one of my favorite sayings ever. Redeeming is what God is into. He is the finder of directionally challenged sheep, the searcher of missing coins, the embracer of foolish prodigal sons. His favorite department is lost and found. Man, I love that. That's God. And how God saves is never through being a member of a church. Listen, you can't join Cornerstone and get saved. In fact, listen, the elders are really, really careful about this. You can't join Cornerstone unless you are saved. So joining a church won't save you. Completing confirmation classes won't save you. Giving an extraordinary amount of money in an act of unparalleled generosity to the needy can never save you. Taking communion won't save you. Any church-sanctioned sacrament has no power to save you. And trying to keep every one of the Ten Commandments, which we all know you cannot keep, will never save you. There's only one way to be saved. It's by believing and trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for you. But how? How do you believe that? How do you have faith? And the word of God is absolutely clear on this point. How does a person begin to believe? What Romans says, chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now flip that in the other direction. When, now listen, when the word of God is preached, can I all, some of you are going, well, that, that's kind of your job and Matthew's and Tim's job or some of the elders. Are they ready? Listen. Or taught or explained at work in your dorm room, in your neighborhood, over your dining table, whenever the word of God is explained, taught, preached, or shared, it produces faith in dead hearts. Now, some of you need a corrective because you've believed that if you have faith, then the word of God will energize that faith and you'll turn to God for salvation. No, that's not the truth. Jesus corrected this with Nicodemus. It's the preaching of God's word, this explaining of God's word that actually brings life to faith. It puts faith in. It helps a person believe. That's the power of the living and active word of God. You've got to preach if you want people to believe. And when they believe, they will turn to Christ for salvation. And this is exactly what we see happening in verse 5 in Jonah 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And you've got you to gotta stop and you've got to go, what? Here's the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people believed and they turned to God. They didn't believe Jonah, the text doesn't say that. They believed God. 
And look at the response. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And all of a sudden, listen, God's people, you've got to be convinced of this, that God's word, when it's preached and explained and taught and shared, it unleashes the power to believe. And it's when a person believes that they will be saved. Don't you remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Listen, an agnostic or an atheist cannot be saved until the word of God puts faith in them. So don't try to make the word of God palatable or apologetically convincing to them. You can't debate somebody into faith. You can't argue them into faith. You simply lovingly, graciously present the word of God and it will do its job. Because they've got to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? And this is really what I want to explain. All of us exercise faith every single day, whether you realize it or not. You eat something from a restaurant, you drink something that you opened up from a store, you, you trust that it's not contaminated, you drive across a bridge trusting it to support you, you deposit your paycheck trusting that the bank is going to keep it safe. Listen, we demonstrate faith all the time. I mean, just think about it. When you drove to church today or walked did you look at every oncoming car and say I kind of wonder if they're going to pass into my lane and kill me. Probably most of us didn't really think about it. Listen, you're putting your faith in a stranger that you've never met to stay on their side of the road and not crash into you. That's faith. Probably nobody sat down in your pew today wondering if it was about to break and cause you an injury. That's faith. Faith is a constant. It's an everyday action, and it forms the understanding of what Nineveh did. Now, here's, here we go. You ready? I'm going to take you deep dive into believed. Believed is a verb. It's not a noun. Believed is a verb that means to be firm in what you believe is true. It was a word used when a nail found something secure to be driven into. Haven't you... Haven't you pounded a nail or screwed a, screw, a drywall screw through your sheetrock and missed the stud? you got to pull it back out until you find it, but when you find the stud, now you can hang things on it. Well, that's what the word believe means. It means it was used when the nail found the stud and it could support the weight. Let me give you a way to understand what that means. You ready? You're an Amazon Prime member. You get to enjoy two-day shipping. And this last Monday, imagine this. I'm a PC guy, but Nate Finari, he's a Mac guy because he's not walking with the Lord. So he buys, let's say Nate, Nate buys an iPad Pro. That's a workhorse tablet. So he buys an iPad Pro, and after he buys it on Amazon, he gets an email saying that, Here's a validation, a receipt of your purchase. It's in his email. 
The next day, he gets another email from Amazon saying, we want to let you know that your iPad Pro has shipped. And it's shipping with, let's say, FedEx. And it gives you a link to FedEx and their tracking numbers for your iPad Pro. So you get on FedEx, you plug in your tracking numbers, you fill out, text me when the package arrives, keep me updated. So you get a text on Tuesday evening that your iPad Pro is at this place and it's scheduled for your delivery tomorrow on Wednesday. You go to work on Wednesday. You're excited. You're going to get an iPad Pro. You're going to come home that evening from work. You're going to set it up. You're going to see how awesome it is, the retina screen, just not as good as the surface, and you're going to really enjoy this thing. Noon. FedEx drops the package off at your door and sends you a text your package has been delivered an hour later nate's mom or dad or somebody that's at home texts them hey nate just want to let you know the ipad pro is here wow nate is utterly convinced the nail has gone through the wall into a stud he can hang his belief on it my ipad pro is home you know what I'm going to stop at Best Buy. I'm going to get a screen protector for it. I'm going to get a case for it. I'm going to get a stylus and an external keyboard because my iPad Pro has arrived. But listen, Nate's not seen it yet. He hasn't unpackaged it yet. He hasn't gone through the unboxing ceremony yet. He's never even laid eyes on it, yet he's utterly convinced his iPad Pro is there and he's already making purchases toward it. Why? Because he believes in the testimony of the loved ones in his home and he believes FedEx meant it when it said it's been delivered that's what faith looks like and some of us want to say well listen i won't believe until god sits down and answers my question yet you've got all the testimony of evidence you've got the changed lives of the people who love you you've got the word of god that's been codified and put into 66 books and has endured the test of time its criticism cannot undo it you've got evidence before you enough to drive the nail into the stud and hang a life of belief on it and you will not do it that's Nineveh if they did not turn back to God. See, the word of God that Jonah preached, now listen, was the email from Amazon, the text from FedEx, and the text from his loved ones that said that their package arrived. It was all the evidence that the people in Nineveh needed. And it changed their lives. They trusted God. They placed their lives in his mercy. They believed firmly and surely and certainly that in 40 days, if they did not change their ways, God was going to destroy them. He fired across their bow, and it was a warning that was enough for them. And it created in them a godly sorrow that led them to repentance. Look at the evidence of it. They called for a fast When's the last time you have fasted? Breakfast doesn't count. Break your fast doesn't count. Somebody once told me, I fast every night. I go, wow, you are a godly person. Yeah, and then I eat breakfast and it breaks it. Well, that's not fasting. 
What is fasting? Fasting is a very deliberate and intentional abstention from food. It's when you don't eat or you modify what you eat. And in the Bible, it was almost always for the purpose of urgently seeking God in a very difficult circumstance. And then look what they did. They dressed in sackcloth. That was a very coarse, very itchy, very rough material made from a dark goat's hair. Sackcloth was almost always black. It was used for its namesake. They sewed it into sacks to carry merchandise to the market and back. And when you wore sackcloth, you, you sewed it into the form of a kilt, and you wore it next to your skin. And its purpose was to make you, just like fasting, physically uncomfortable. Why? Well, let me tell you a little story about Andy, my 10-year-old son, who when he was three, we weren't really watching him. I was out in the front room. He had slid a chair up against the counter and reached up into a cabinet to get a glass, and he dropped it and broke it, and it shattered. And I immediately heard him crying, and he came running out of the kitchen towards me, and he's doing this. I couldn't believe it. He's going, you don't need to spank me. I'm spanking me. I'm going, am I abusive? I mean, I think my kids are turning out okay. Is that what fasting and sackcloth is? God, I'm, I'm, I'm making myself in pain so you don't have to do it for me. That's not what it is. That's not at all what it is. They are evidences that their belief, their faith, had created an understanding in them of the seriousness of their sin. Their hearts were broken before God. See, fasting and wearing sackcloth was to bring your external into conformity with your internal, that your body would feel what your soul is feeling, that both would be broken and drive you to repentance so that you don't change your mind in a week. And it makes us really perhaps ask, what do you do when God begins to convict you, when he fires across the bow of your life, and he sends a divine warning, what do you do? Let me bring you to the end of this sermon by sharing you a story. This happened in 1994. I was, I was a youth pastor in Marietta for almost two years. I had never had anything like this happen before. I had a couple who were teenagers in my youth group. We'll call them Jeff and Shauna. I had put a lot of time into Jeff. Loved that kid. Had a really bad home life. Godless. I put a lot of time into him. And we're at youth group one Sunday night when all of a sudden I see kids whispering, and it doesn't usually take long. One of them came to me and said, Jeff and Shauna had sex. Parents, if you don't know what it means to hear on Facebook or see on Facebook or hear the phrase Netflix and chill, you need to know what it means. It means let's go watch a movie and have sex afterwards. That's common vernacular today. This is what they did, except it wasn't Netflix. They just went out and they had sex. And what am I going to do about this? I never encountered this before. I never worked with anybody that this, they had done this knowingly. 
I didn't know what to do other than I knew my utter confidence in the word of God. I know that God's word is living and active. So I called, actually, before they left Sunday night, I said, Jeff and Shauna, would you come in to see me after school on Tuesday? He was driving. He picked her up. He brought her in. They come in. They came in, and I didn't know what to do. All I knew what to do was I, I chose 13 or 14 passages from scripture that had to do with purity before marriage i mean the song of solomon warns us repeatedly do not arouse love until it's time if you arouse love before marriage it almost always will destroy your relationship if it doesn't destroy it it will mute what you're going to enjoy for the rest of your married life i've seen it over and over and over it's a warning it's a firing across the bow so many of us don't listen to it they came in. I said, Shauna, I'm going to have you read some of these verses. And Jeff, then I'm going to have you read some of them, and then I'll read the rest of them. I made no commentary on any of them. I didn't explain any of them. I, made no, I gave no insights into any of them. We literally only read the word of God. And Shauna began to read in her, by the time she got to the third passage, she is weeping. And inwardly, I'm a young pastor who does not really know what he's doing, and I'm going, wow, this is really awesome. God, this is your word doing this. This is what it means to be a pastor. I really like this. This is powerful. This is exciting. And then she finishes, and she's weeping, and Jeff begins to read, and, and I'm following along on my sheet. I handed everybody a sheet of just scripture on it, and I look up, and Jeff's face is just beat red and contorted into anger in his fists. I'll never forget, they were clenched, and I'm going, wait a minute, she's weeping, and he's furious, and nothing's being said but the word of God. This is what the word of God is doing in them. And then I finish by reading my verses. He absolutely hardened his heart. She absolutely broke. The following Sunday, the lead pastor preached, and she came up afterwards to the altar steps, and she knelt down, and her whole body is just racking and heaving and sobbing. And I walk up, and I said, Shauna, you need to talk to your parents about this. And she says, I know, but I can't. See, her father, I know this because I went to a, an Atlanta Braves baseball game with him. He took me to a game, and he started telling me about his life as a sniper in his special forces in Vietnam. And I said, this, this, the dumbest thing you should ever say, did you ever have to kill somebody? And he looked at me with such darkness and said, don't ever ask me that again. I never did. This man suffered from PTSD. He was prone to fits of anger. And she was scared that his, her father would actually literally kill this kid. And I was scared too. Lord, please don't let him do that. We invited the parents back into my room and I helped Shauna be able to confess to them what she did. Thank God to his grace. The family was angry. They were hurt, but they were gathered around each other. It drew them closer together. But Jeff, whom I had put so much time in, not once ever came to church again, would not come to youth group again, would not return my calls, would not go out with me to talk about this. He completely hardened his heart, and he walked away from God, and his life spiraled downward. And I never said a thing 
It was the living and active word of God. And this is what Hebrews says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power of God's word. And it makes me want to close with this question. Do you have utter confidence in the word of God? It's not the word of God plus your efforts. It's not the word of God plus your incredible ways of presenting it. It's not the word of God plus your winsome personality that's going to do the transforming work in another person's life. It is the living and active word of God. As near as I could tell, Jonah had no personality. Yet it transformed a city of 600,000 people into as one person, a repentant community. A little sermon that when you boil it down goes like this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's the power of God's word. Will 2016 be the year that you grow in your love for and your confidence in God's word?